0: following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 2, 22-32. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Uh, we are picking up where we left off in the Apostles' Creed. Um, the Apostles' Creed is a concise statement of Christian belief. Every Christian believes uh, at least the Apostles' Creed. Everybody believes, every Christian believes more than that, but that is sort of the central doctrines that Christians, through all time and space, whether, regardless of what our denomination affiliation you have, every Christian at least believes the Apostles' Creed. And we've been going our way through this Apostles' Creed, unpacking stanza by stanza. Last week we it was kind of a heavy week if you were with us. We, we saw that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, not just under Pontius Pilate, but his whole life was a life of suffering. That he was crucified, died, and was buried, and, and it just kind of ends there, which I hate to end the sermon sort of in that spot, because that's not the whole news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that, that Jesus came back to life, and so we are here at the most controversial and the most essential piece of the Apostles' Creed where we are looking at the stanza that Jesus descended to the dead and on the third day He rose again. Now, what makes this controversial here is this first part of the stanza where he says that he descended to the dead. The traditional version of the Apostles' Creed, if you grew up in the church, you grew up learning the Apostles' Creed, you probably learned it a little bit different than how we profess it here on Sunday mornings. You probably said that he descended into hell and on the third day he rose again. Now, there's a reason why we've modified that, and so I want to unpack this for you. Um, It's not that it's wrong to say that Jesus descended to hell. It's not wrong. It's not incorrect, per se, but it definitely isn't clear in the English. Um, The word hell in modern English carries a a different meaning than the word hell did when they wrote out the Apostles' Creed around 300 A.D., Um, it carries a different significance. When, when we think of hell, we typically think of this forever, eternal place of fiery e- an inferno. Um, it's this mi- place of misery, place of destruction where literally uh, God gives people over to, to what they desire. That's everything that's not him. It's just kind of a, a cascade of destruction. Um, but... but the word hell, what's happened in the English language, has consolidated two Greek and Hebrew words into meaning something that's not actually lines up with what biblical teaching is. So it it makes it kind of difficult to talk about this, to have a conversation around what it means that Jesus descended to hell. So I'd like to to, um, uh, unpack it to hopefully kind of um, undo some unhelpful cultural assumptions that we have about what we say when we say Um, That Jesus descended to the dead or when Jesus descended to hell. Um, Now, if you were to go on the street and you were to ask really anybody, um, ask them what happens when you die, probably, most likely, uh, we're still in sort of a Christendom era. Where some that person would probably say, you know, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. You either go to the good place or you go to the bad place. There's some sort of life after death that's either a good experience or there's a, a bad experience. Now, this is true. This this is the Bible affirms this idea that there is heaven, there's hell. Um but it also clarifies a little bit for us what we mean when we use those words heaven and hell. Uh, um, I think a lot of times heaven, we get this cartoonish, uh, version of heaven floating around on clouds, little cherubs playing harps. It's sort of just like spiritual nebula of, I don't know. It's just sort of very vague in our sense of heaven. And when we talk about hell, it's sort of like that picture that I, I that, 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 that I explained this, this inferno of things. Now, there is, there is a heaven, there is a hell, but Revelation, the Bible clarifies what this looks like. Uh, we, we read in Revelation, if you were with us a couple months ago when we went through the whole book of Revelation, it gives us this picture of heaven, not of this nebula, a uh, floating space, but heaven is really the new heavens and new earth, where heaven and earth come together and merge, so there's the spiritual, the physical uniting together in something that we've never experienced before. Um, so that, that's what heaven is really like. Um, and, and in the coming weeks, we'll kind of get into this more when we talk about the, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Um, but but there's also this place of, of well actually, and then to get to this place of heaven, I've got a lot of coffee going through my system. I hope you're catching up with me. Um, To get to this place of heaven, what has to happen is you have to put your faith in Jesus. And when you put your faith in Jesus, God judges you, not based on your own works, but on the works of Christ, which are perfect, they're flawless. And in that, we are granted eternity with Jesus in the celestial city. All right, that's how you get to heaven. Now, the other side of that, um, you you die, if you've rejected Jesus... You will be judged not based on Jesus' works, but your own works, which are deeply flawed. And when you're judged by your own works, you see the sinfulness of your life come out. What happens is you're cast into, eventually, the lake of fire, which we see in Revelation uh, chapter 19 and 20. And and that's what we typically think of when we think about hell, this final resting place, the fiery infernal. And now when Jesus talks about hell... um, he, he distinguishes between this place of the dead, Hades, which we'll unpack here in a second, and, and the place of forever misery. He uses the word Gehenna. Now in the first century, Gehenna was a literal place. Um, outside of Jerusalem was this place called Gehenna, which was the place where all of the trash, all of the waste of Jerusalem would be exported to this place called Gehenna, and it would be burned. So Gehenna is literally a dumpster fire of misery. It's misery. Um, and so people, when Jesus would talk about hell, he, it would invoke this sense of an eternal dumpster fire of hell. And, 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 and listen, when you see what is coming either you accept jesus and you uh live with in eternity with him or you reject jesus and you are forever miserable in hell this is why we at sacred city are so passionate about mission there are people outside of the church who are perishing that unless they have an encounter with jesus unless they put their trust in jesus that is going to be their miserable future and and listen out of compassion out of, a, out of a realization that if it were not for Christ, that's where we would be, we step into mission and say, hey, we have come with good news. That that doesn't have to be your ending, right? That's why we're so serious about mission. But to think that this stuff happens, heaven, hell, boom, boom, forever, eternity, happens immediately after death is a cultural assumption, Are you tracking with me? This doesn't actually... When you die, you don't immediately go to heaven. You don't immediately go to hell. This might blow your mind here for a second. The Bible says that's going to happen after the final judgment, which is still to come when Jesus comes back again, right? We see this in Revelation chapter 20. So it's not right out of the shoe, uh, right after we die, we go to heaven and hell. Actually, what would happen, uh, to get a better idea of what happens after we die, we would be better off turning to uh, first century Jews to help gain some understanding of what they believe when you die and what happens right after death. And, And what they would say is that when you die, when anyone dies, you go to this Place called Sheol. Whether you're righteous, whether you're wicked, whether you've trusted in God, whether you've not, you go to this place of the dead. Sheol is a Jewish word, uh, the 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 Hebrew word. Um, Hades is the Greek word, and it's it's this place of dead. It's the the temporary in between place between life now and the place where you'll spend eternity later. It's this in-between place, okay, the place of the dead. And, and, and throughout Scripture, what we, what we realize about Hades or Sheol uh, spatially, it's this downward place, right? It's... You look through the psalms, and the psalmist will say, Oh, you you rescued me from Sheol. You rescued me from the pit. It's this place in the depths where the dead reside. Now, this is vastly different from what we think of when we think of hell in in the the final judgment place of Gehenna. Um, Erdman's Bible Dictionary tells us and clarifies, Sheol is the general abode of all the dead. Think of it like a spiritual waiting room where the dead go to wait for the final judgment. And, And in this place, in Sheol, there is a good side and there is a bad side. Now, I don't exactly know what this looks like, uh, but, but we actually see this play out in a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. There's this rich man and this poor man named Lazarus, and Jesus tells a story of how the rich man had everything he needed. He sees Lazarus sitting outside of his doorstep. The rich man never helps Lazarus out. He, he's begging his life. He's, his life is so miserable that the dogs basically are just licking up his sores, and it's just really sad. And then what happens The rich man he, As he's portrayed as wicked As he his greed His lack of generosity Portrays his wickedness He goes down to Hades To Sheol When he dies And it's in this place um, Where he experiences A deep longing of thirst He's got this unquenchable thirst And if you think about it I feel like that's a really great illustration For uh, what what like maybe even a foretaste of what hell is like you have this need you have something that needs to be met yet you never experience it. it's always a forever place of longing and this rich man as he's sitting here and he's just thirsty he looks across the distance he looks He looks. he's in Sheol he looks across the distance in Sheol and he sees this poor man Lazarus living up at Abraham's side it's this it's it's basically. This is sort of a, um, a, a. I can't think of the word. It's like another word for uh, the good place. It's a, a nomenclature. It's a. It's a. I don't know. Um, it, he's saying that Lazarus is next to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. It's the place where the faithful go. It's still in Sheol, but there's a clear separation between the wicked and the righteous. And and and, La- and the rich man asked, "Hey." Abraham, could you send this Lazarus to come across and just give me a little drop of water to help quench my thirst? And, and, and as he asks this, Abraham, who's the father of the faith, looks to this rich man and he says, Listen, your reward is coming. Right the, the consequences of your actions in this life are about to unfold. Right now you're probably getting a foretaste of it. Um, and, and, and at this point, with, when your life expires, your chance for mercy has also expired. And what Abraham says, hey, so not only has your time expired, that mercy has run out in, in your life, there's also this chasm here in Sheol. It's a chasm that's fixed between Abraham's side and the rest of Sheol, where the wicked go. And so here, Jesus is showing, he's illustrating us what this place of the dead is like. Now, we have to be careful to not confuse Sheol, uh, the place of the dead, or Hades, with the Catholic idea of purgatory. These are not the same things. All right, let me clarify this. Purgatory is a fictitious narrative where you can go to the place of the dead and you can work off whatever remaining sins you have before you stand before the throne of judgment. Now, this... This might sound like a good thing but actually it's really a terrible thing because what this means that if you die and you still have sins to work off it means that Jesus' blood wasn't sufficient to cleanse you of all your sins which means that the gospel is inadequate. It's a false gospel. So you can not work off your sins in Sheol no more than you can reverse a cavity sitting in a dentist's waiting room. It doesn't make sense. See, what Scripture tells us, Sheol is the waiting place, the, the waiting place of the dead. Now, when the Apostles' Creed said says that Jesus descended into hell, it doesn't mean that he's going to the fiery inferno uh, that's for eternity. Jesus went to the place of Sheol. That's what it meant. He, he went, as a man, Jesus followed the natural order of death, and then on the third day, we see he was... He he was raised again, but in that time of being in the dead, those those three days, from Friday, Saturday, up to Sunday morning, Jesus resided in the land of death. Now, one of the misconceptions that we have is that, that when Jesus died, um, some some might say, well, he didn't actually really die. It just looked like he died, and, and he he lived on. He went up to the Father. That's actually not what happened. Jesus didn't ascend to the Father right away. Jesus went to the depths of Sheol, and he resided in the land of death. Now, when we talk about death, death is, is scary, right? There's something about death, the unknownness of death, that scares us. We, we don't like to think about it. We don't talk about it. You don't sit for sit down for coffee and then start talking with a friend. Right? Hey, have you thought about death lately? Like, we, That's not a dialogue that we commonly have because... Because there's a, a, an element of fear to it, and there's a reason why cemeteries are associated with Halloween. Because aside from the Bible, like, the, actually, it's very little the Bible tells us about like, the process of death. Aside from what the Bible tells us, we really don't know what to expect when our lives expire here on earth and we cross over into the next life. Now, there are going to be people... Um, And I I will, I'm just, they're kind of kooky people who say, you know what, I've died, I went to heaven, I went to hell. There's lots of people that wrote books about this experience, and, and they're going to try to tell you what this is like. And I'm not saying that there are people who have had some sort of experience like that where maybe they were dead for a minute, but the problem with this is when people have had that sort of experience, and then they come back and they try to, Create a new theology around what they think that they've experienced, and they start writing books about it and trying to persuade people into this. This, I don't know. It's just really, it's sort of a delusion. Um, I think it's usually best practice to ignore those people. So if you have like books of thirty seconds in heaven or whatever the, the book is, like it's that's a book that you could go ahead and just set aside. Um, don't even donate to Goodwill. Just just like recycle it because C- that stuff isn't helpful. Um, and, and the reason. The reason why we tend to be drawn to these books, because I think everybody's always, you know, you see the Amazon bestsellers list, there seems to always be a bestseller of that sort of genre on the Christian bestseller list. The reason why we're so drawn to this is because we just want a heads up about what death is like. Like, what can we expect when we cross over from the land of the living into the land of dead? And I think that this is really why death generates so much fear, because it it becomes a scary thing because we don't know what to expect in fact maybe it's another factor of it that you have no control over right death is the strong man who bends you to his will you have no control over death right so if you're one of those people that just a control freak that you're sort of obsessive about things in your life see death will put you into a downward spiral when you start to think about it it's the ultimate expression of, of a lack of control. And that, for a lot of people, a lot of us, is very scary. Now, what's unique here, what's interesting, that as you make your way through uh, history, Christian history specifically, you believers have been able to find a great deal of comfort in the reality that Jesus not only died, but he descended to dead, where he went to the place of the dying or the dead in Sheol. Richard Baxter, he wrote... A poem that had been turned into a hymn. He says, "Christ leads me through no darker rooms than He went through before." Now, now what he's talking about is the, that that there is no place. There is no place. Not only in this earth, but there's no place in the depths of the dead where we can go where Jesus isn't there with us. I. Psalm 139 is, is it, it, it's a prophecy, really. Uh, the psalmist says, if I go up to heaven, there you are, God. There you are, Jesus. If I go to the depths of Sheol, there you are. Now, this is, this is why Christians have been able to exit this life with so much grace and peace and comfort. It's really interesting. If you, if you go and you look up some of the last words of some of the more prolific Christian leaders throughout history, none of, none of the expressions that they have on their deathbed are of remorse, of fear, of uh, they're not scared. In fact, they, they resign gladly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this might look like the end, but really it's the beginning. Christians have been able to deal with death in such a way that I think is really winsome. I think there's something incredibly powerful of a saint, regardless of if you've been famous or notable by any means, but a saint who has walked with Jesus for many years on their deathbed, who who releases their life with a smile on their face because they know that they're going to be with Jesus. See, this life is what's scary. If you're a Christian, this life seems uncertain. But in the next life, with Jesus, we have absolute certainty that he's in control, that he's with us. There's a great comfort in this. Now, even more than that, even more than comfort through the the, the dissension, is that a word? Where Jesus descended, I'm just making up words left and right today, as Jesus ascended to the dead, this gives us a comfort, but here's the deal. What happens next gives us uh, confidence, where Jesus didn't stay dead. In fact, when you're going through Acts chapter 2 here, um, you know Peter is, is preaching a gospel, or the gospel actually for the very first time, and, and he, he gets to this point where Jesus... I love this where he starts out. Men of Israel. This is uh, Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. I think you guys know Lion King. Uh, You know the the hyenas are sitting there and they say, Mufasa. Say it again. Mufasa. See, this is what it's like. This is what it's like. This is the, the name of Jesus means more than just a name. It's a person. A person with power. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Okay, he's saying you, you guys saw what happened. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now listen, Everything that happened last week with the the suffering, crucifixion, the death, the burial, it was all, as we see here, part of God's definite plan. And here's how the plan keeps unfolding. Because in verse 24 it says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, Peter's saying what the Apostles' Creed affirms, that on the third day, Jesus rose again. And as we keep going down here in Acts chapter two, after chapter 2, what we see in verses 25 through 28 is actually a quote from Psalm 116 that, that David King David wrote for himself. That actually, when people read this in David's time, they thought it was about him. But in reality, the resurrection, this Jesus who got up from the grave, goes back and reinterprets the Scripture. So it's not about David, as Peter points out, but it's about Jesus. In verse 29, he says, the, the stuff about not seeing corruption, right? this is about Jesus. And he goes on, he says, um, Brothers, I may say with you, with confidence, about the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David is still dead. The stuff about not seeing corruption, not being abandoned to Hades... See, this is not true about David. He's still dead. He says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, this is talking about Jesus. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now, what Peter's talking about, he says, when we're all witnesses, he's standing there uh, with the apostles. The, the day of Pentecost has happened. It's been sort of a spectacle, and Peter's standing there with the apostles, and he's saying, listen, we've seen Jesus in his resurrected body. He's not dead anymore. This reality that it was Jesus It was Jesus who was not abandoned to Hades. It was Jesus whose flesh didn't see corruption. That Jesus is now living once again. And there are witnesses of it. Not just the apostles, but but we see later on, uh, Corinthians talks about how more than 500 people, actually on 12 different occasions, it says that there's 500 people who have seen him. That they've seen Jesus alive in his resurrected state. Now, church, this is the reason why we worship Jesus. It's not just because he died our death that we deserve to die. It was because he was raised. We serve a God who's not dead, who's not in Hades, who's not just waiting it out down there. He's He's a God who has been come alive. So that Jesus' life is so full of life that he could not be contained by death. I love the, the hymn that we sing uh, from time to time. It says, then bursting forth on glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. It's, it's this powerful explosion of life that where Jesus went to Sheol, the place of the dead, life went with him. See, that's the thing. When we go to Sheol, if we were to go, I'm going to show you how this some of these rules here change here in a minute, but if we were to have gone to Sheol, we just go, we lose our life, we check out the door. Jesus took his life with him down to Sheol. He was full of life. So much so that Jesus came up with the keys of Hades. That's what Revelation chapter 1 tells us. And and in this was a showing that Jesus is liberating those who believe in him, those who have tasted death and have gone before him are now liberated from the place of Sheol. So when Jesus ascends, he takes those who had died in the faith with him. See, the Apostle Paul tells us that absent from flesh, present with the Lord. This is a sense where Sheol is still very much a place, and, and, and God will come, and he'll deal with those who are in Sheol. But for the believer, we are with Christ in the heavenly places. Actually, even right now, there's a truth to that right now. Right now, we are with Christ in the heavenly places. See, Christians don't worship a dead guy. We don't, we don't worship a martyr we worship a Jesus who is alive right now with a power so strong that it overcame death. Now what... I said something a minute ago about the kooks who write these books about dying and back to life. Now what makes what makes this scenario different than those kooks that have these book deals, right? Is this a double standard here? Am I bending my rules? What is, what's going on here? No, this is not a double standard. This is a completely different thing. And, and let me just... Uh, tell you why. There is a difference between resurrection, what Jesus did, and resuscitation. There's a difference. There's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection. Now I believe, like I said, there are people who have medically died before who could say, yeah, they didn't have a heartbeat. They died and something happens with their spirit for a moment. It's suspended. I don't know what exactly what happens, but then they're medically resuscitated. They get the little shockers out, they're awake again. There's some sort of intervention that allows them to regain their life. Now, this is not the same of what happened with Jesus. Because what we're told is that Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. That Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Let me explain. If you go to John chapter 11, which, by the way, is a fascinating chapter. It's actually super comical. Um, John chapter 11 Gives us an example of Jesus resuscitating a man named Lazarus. Different Lazarus than who I mentioned before. This, this Lazarus was his buddy. Um, he's referred to as the one who Jesus loved. Um, so he's a dear friend of Jesus. And, and word gets to Jesus that Lazarus, he's not doing so hot. He's sick. Uh, it seems like he's on his deathbed. His sisters sent for him. And Jesus doesn't seem too concerned to get there very quick as you read through it you realize he's only a two mile walk away from his buddy Lazarus but Jesus takes at least four days to get to him now in this time as Jesus sort of moses his way to Lazarus Lazarus dies and Jesus knows this in some supernatural way we're not exactly sure how he knows this but, but he he waits long enough so that his buddy Lazarus is going to die. Now, there's something to be said here about this pa- pastorally. There are times where it feels like Jesus is just taking too long. There's times where we're waiting on Jesus and it, it seems like he just didn't show up. Now, it'd be really easy to, to despair, to criticize Jesus, like, What's going on? What, what's happening here? Why would you let this happen in my life? But here's the deal Jesus has a different plan, Jesus has a different perspective. Jesus is in the business of using things to glorify God, even some of the circumstances you find yourself in that are hard to navigate through. And this scenario with Lazarus is a per- perfect example of this. When Lazarus dies, Jesus says, to his disciples who are with him, he says, "All right, let, let's head over to Lazarus. I, I want to go wake him up." And the disciples are like, "Dude, just let the sleeping or let, let the sick guy sleep. That's how he's going to get his strength back. Just let him sleep. Don't wake him up." And Jesus says, "No, no, no. You don't understand me. He's dead. I'm going to go wake him up." And like you could, like, what wake up a dead guy? What's about to happen here is Jesus is about to do a little flex on death. So later on, his disciples will believe in Jesus when he does a big flex on death. See, this whole scenario is unfolding so that Jesus can prove to his disciples and to those who are with him that he has the power over death. Now, when he gets to Lazarus' side, where where Lazarus Lazarus is—man, it's really hard to say that word— Lazarus' sisters are mad. They're fuming. They're they're all in their feelings. They're upset at Jesus. Mary is giving Jesus the silent treatment. The cold shoulder, like, I don't even want to talk to you. And Martha, on the other hand, comes, and the first thing that she says to Jesus, he starts blaming him. Why why didn't you show up? If you would have been here, things would have unfolded in a completely different way. In fact, if you go to John chapter 11, uh, I'm at verse 21. Uh, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, uh, there is a lot of guts here when you come forward with a finger of accusation toward, toward the, the Son of God. But she didn't hold back. She's, and then she's, she has this realization, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to her. And Jesus asks her, or Jesus said to her, rather, your brother will rise again. Now Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now now here, this is important here. Even in Jewish theology, there is this idea that once you die, there's a judgment, and then on the other side of judgment, there's a resurrection for those who believe. See, Christianity did not invent resurrection. This is something that has been deeply uh, uh, profound, deeply, uh, it's steeped in Jewish understanding of life after death. In fact, there's a whole disagreement. There's two people groups in Jewish tradition of the Pharisees who believe in the resurrection after the dead and the Sadducees who deny the resurrection of the dead. So this is a debate that's been going a long time among the Jewish people. And And Martha here is saying, yeah, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says, yeah, he will, but let me show you something else. Now at this point, if you go down to verse thirty-seven of, of uh, John eleven, I don't know if we have, I don't think we have it on the screen, um, but just take my word for it here. People start to wonder if Jesus actually has any power. They've seen him doing these miracles. They've seen him giving sight to the blind, healing those who are sick, and they start to wonder, man, why can't this guy who gave people their sight back do something about his best buddy? Right? If, if there's anybody who should be compassionate toward, if anybody who should go to bat for it, should be this guy. Why is he standing there with his hands in his pockets? What happens next is it's crazy. Jesus walks up to the stone, the, the place where Lazarus is buried, they would have a big stone over the tomb, so nobody could get in and out. Mostly it's t- to seal in the stench of death. And Jesus walks up to the stone and says, Hey, why don't you move this? And everybody's like, dude, that's a terrible idea. It's real stinky in there. And Jesus says this prayer uh, in verses forty one and forty two of, of chapter eleven. Um, He says, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of people standing around that they might believe you sent me. Jesus is telling us this whole scenario, this whole circumstance is unfolding so people would see and believe. And Jesus, as the tomb is open, he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out. Now, this is the power of God's word. This is the power of Jesus speaking. The, 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 the word that created all things out of nothing back in Genesis 1. Here's the power in the word of God speaking and bringing forth life. In fact, uh, theologians say, I, I forget who exactly said it, but, but Jesus had to specify who in the tomb he wanted to extract because if he would not have said Lazarus' name specifically, all of the dead in the tomb would have walked out. That's how much power is in Jesus and his word. And here we see that Lazarus was dead, dead, like literally dead, wrapped like mummified almost. Well, not not necessarily mummified, but he's wrapped in his burial linens, and he's been like that way for nearly a week. He's been dead for a long time, and here Jesus flexes over death. He shows his power over death. But here's the thing: this, this and this is this is a resuscitation. Lazarus. His life was on pause and then Jesus hit the play button again and his life resumed. Because here's the thing, eventually Lazarus dies again. See, that's that's resuscitation. Anybody who's been resuscitated medically will eventually die again. Death has a 100% success rate. In that moment, Lazarus' heart stopped and then Jesus made it start beating again. He pulled Lazarus out of Sheol and placed him back into his life where he kept the same form. There were no noticeable changes about him. It's like all of the same normal physics applied to Lazarus as he was resuscitated. He just resumed his life right from the point where he left off. Now, people came from a long ways to see what Jesus did, right? News about Jesus resuscitating this dead guy named Lazarus spread about people would come to see Jesus, and then the next chapter in John chapter 12 talks about how people wanted to see Lazarus for themselves. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe the power that Jesus had over death. Now, like Lazarus, Jesus was dead, dead, right? The crucifixion proved that. There was no doubt that Jesus, after Going through the agonizing pain of the cross, he was dead, dead. He descended to the dead. He was down in Sheol, to Hades, where we see this uh, back in uh, where am I? Acts chapter two. That he was down in Hades, but he didn't stay there. He rose again. In fact, when his disciples come to his tomb on Resurrection Sunday, the angels ask, "Why do you search for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for Jesus among the dead people? He's not here. He's alive." But here's the difference: when Jesus comes out of Sheol, he isn't resuscitated; he is resurrected. There has been a transformation that happens. There's been an exertion of power that extends beyond resuscitation. If you go back to John chapter ten, man, Jesus says, "He, he here's what happens." For this reason, the father. This is John chapter ten, verse seventeen. You can jot that down. And come back to it. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. What he's saying, like, none of the Jewish leaders took it from me. None of the Roman soldiers took it from me. I laid it down on my own accord. And this is like, I don't know, you can write me an email about this later, but there's no other way to say this. This is badass. Jesus said, I have the authority to lay it down, lay my life down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Nobody else can say that. You can't say that. I can't say that. Jesus says, I lay my life down and then on my own accord I pick it back up again. It's by the, his power, by the power of God, that Jesus went through life into death and then he decided to pick it back up again. But what we're told here is that Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation, of this new life. And when we use this word new, Especially in Christian theology, it's not necessarily a, uh, a chronologic uh, nomenclature. It doesn't specify like a brand new thing where we get it out of the box and it's brand new. What is, when we talk about new in Christian theology, we are talking about a qualitative. That Jesus takes what was broken and decrepit and he renews it, that he restores it, that he brings it back to its uh, above its original design. And so in every way Jesus picks back up his life again Where where sin had devolved our humanity He is restoring it and he is resurrecting it He comes in a resurrected body And we'll get more into this later But but in this body there's no sickness There's no death The the physical capabilities change The, The principles of physics change Jesus walks through doors, walks through walls Yet eats fish Something is different. When people look at Jesus, he's semi-recognizable. He's got the scars of his old life, but at the same time, he's been transformed in a way where where people who had been walking with him didn't even recognize him. Jesus came back to life, not in a resuscitation, but in a resurrection. He got a new body. He began a, a new life, a new era of the resurrection. In fact, if Jesus hadn't ascended to the Father... He would still be walking around earth to this day, living and breathing in his resurrected body. And it's upon our death, because he ascended to heaven, that we go to be with him. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us to be absent from the flesh means we're present with the Lord. Now, resurrection life is different. Now, N.T. Wright says. Resurrection is life after life after death. Resurrection is life after life after death. Now, there, there are two ways. We could probably spend more time unpacking this, but there's two ways where this is actually true when you unpack this. There's the timeline, right? You you die. You, you spend some time in Sheol, which is a kind of life. Uh, this intermittent time between... Um, death and, and, and the judgment that comes and then would come later. N.T. Wright is saying that we die, we have this intermittent time, we have judgment, and then the new life, the life after life after death is when we are resurrected with fellow believers. Now the second way that this is true, it's life after life after death, means that we will live again someday in bodily form, and death won't. Right now, we live a life where death is going to impose itself on us. But there's a day where death will be defeated completely. And not just defeated, it's already defeated, it's, it'll be eradicated. It won't even be a thing. Death will be non existent, and all of its effects will be reversed. Now, this is the space that, as the firstborn of the new creation, that Jesus occupies right now. And this is the promise that if you believe in Jesus, if you accept him as your Lord and Savior and you trust in him to pay the price for your sin and you you gain a new life in him, this is the place that you can occupy too someday if you believe. And in a couple weeks, we're going to unpack that, the resurrection of the body. But here's something that, that I want you to know today, right now. Oh, geez, I'm going long. Sorry, guys, I'm getting really pumped up. The resurrection is an already but not yet reality. It's not yet physical, right? This external experience of the resurrection, we don't get to experience yet, but it's already in effect spiritually. In real time, the resurrection makes us spiritually alive. I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 2. It talks about this Ephesians chapter two, um, one through seven, and it says, "And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air. That the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were dead." And if you don't believe in Jesus yet, you're in a dead spiritual space. But! These are my favorite words of the whole Bible. I have it tattooed on my leg. But God, it's this turning point where you were dead. But God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Holy smokes. We were once dead. Now we are alive. Paul talks about our our aliveness in 2 Corinthians 5. He said that we are a new creation. That in Jesus we are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And Paul talks about in baptism in Romans 6. How baptism proclaims this unilateral love that God has for us. This great grace. This great love with which he loved us. That leads us to this new life. Romans 6 4 says, we were buried with Jesus by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now what this is saying that in baptism we go down with Christ. We are, in a sense, as we go in the water we are buried with Christ and we come out alive with Him. That we participate in the resurrection right here and right now. This isn't external yet. It's not an external thing yet in a physical bodily sense. In fact, it might appear to be the opposite because like everybody else, we're aging, our bodies break down, they're becoming more and more decrepit. But Paul assures us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now this is the key to walking into this new life. This is the key. If you want to see the resurrecting, Work of the resurrecting power of Jesus at play in your life today, right now. You have to understand this. See, on this side of eternity, the transformation, the resurrected life is happening internally. It's an inside-out transformation. The old life is the life that we lived according to the flesh. And here, not just following the passions and desires that we would say, that oh, those are corrupt, those are bad, those are sinful. But here's the real thing, that we were living in a way where we operated on our own power. That you are mustering up everything you could do to live the good life and try to tip the scales if I've been good enough or bad, you know, to, to upset the, the bad that I've done in my life. That, that's what it's like. And it, listen, it's a never-ending process. If that's how you want to live, you can live like that. It's going to be forever misery because it's like chasing a dog chasing its tail. You'll never catch it. You'll never catch up. You've always tipped the scales in the wrong way. And this is what living life in our own power leads to. It leads us into sin, which leads us to death. But this new life that we have in Christ frees us from that. It gives us a new power. We're told that the power that raised Christ from the dead is now alive in us. How often do we take that for granted? How often do I try to make my way through my day just white-knuckling it, trying to get, get by on my own? And all this time, I've got the power of Christ living inside of me? And I want to do that. See, the power of God is working in our lives in a way that puts the old life to death and gives us new life to live in the power of Christ, a power so strong that death could not hold. Now, if Jesus be death, which is the strongest, most universal power that afflicts us, that imposes its will upon us, just think of what else Jesus can resurrect you from by his power. And I wish I had time to go through and share some of these stories of resurrection where people who were far from God, who Jesus stepped into their life, they saved their soul, they encountered his grace and mercy, and they brought him into new life. There are, I see all kinds of stories out there about that. My story is that story. The power of the resurrection is at work right now to free you from the sins, from the desires, from the powers that restrain you. Whether that's porn, whether it's substance addiction, depression, anxiety, the feeling of worthlessness. Being isolated and lonely, this guilt that might weigh you down, the greed that drives you, the arrogance that leads you to to step on other people, the ignorance that you might have embedded in your DNA, the self-righteousness that you gravitate toward, the the pride and the foolishness that we cling to. All of those things are sin-claiming us, but the power of the resurrection breaks the grip of death, breaks the grip of sin. So you can't master this power on your own. You can't white-knuckle it. The power you need to overcome the sin and the death in your life is the power that comes from the one who himself had overcome death. It's not a question of if Jesus can liberate you, if he can free you, if his power can interact in your life in such a way that, that releases you from these sins. It's a matter of if you believe he would do it. See, the question of, of Martha and Mary there in, in John chapter 11 wasn't a matter of if he could do it. It's if you would believe that he could do it. Do you believe that Jesus could resurrect you? The way this happens is day by day, communing with Jesus on a daily basis. Day by day, we trust in him. We gravitate toward his his power. We draw from his power as it works within us, that we become reliant, that we trust him, that we live according to his way. So much so that that Paul in Galatians 2.20 says that it's not I who lives. I'm not doing this, but it's Christ who lives in me. The power of Christ working in us to do all things that God has called us to. And as you live your life by the power of Christ, in the love of Christ, you become a witness to the resurrection of Jesus like the apostles. Living a resurrected life now makes you a witness of the power of Jesus. Not because you were there to see what happened in the first century with the apostles. But the power of the resurrection is undeniably at work in your life, where you can say, I was once dead and now I'm alive. I was once bound by sin and now I've been freed. You see, you have a a story. And your story, if you were to let Jesus step in there, it's a story of resurrection, it's a story of redemption. And whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades or new or haven't even let Jesus in yet, he wants to go to work and bring resurrection to your life. And in it, he will be glorified. This is my last thought. If the resurrection isn't true, Christians are still in our sins. There's no forgiveness of sins. If the resurrection isn't true, Everything that we say as far as life transformation is kind of a a hoax. The resurrection isn't true. Paul says that we ought to be pitied above all men. But I, I have experienced the power of Jesus in such a way that in my life it is undeniably true. I know some of you have experienced the same thing. i going to call us to live in our resurrected lives, in this new life that Christ has afforded us, in defeating death. And realize this, church, we, we are the living among the dying. If, if the power of Jesus is in you, you are the living among the dying. And we are here to tell those who are perishing in this world about the one who has come to bring us life to the fullest. And that is Jesus Jesus of Nazareth. Father, we thank you for Jesus. I pray that you'd forgive me for going long, but I can't help it. This is such good news, Father. We're thankful for Jesus that you are at work bringing us into new life. We ask God now your spirit would go before us, pave the ways for us to experience that in every way, in every moment, and every day grow more and more dependent upon you and your power, that it would be Christ living in us. We ask this in Jesus' name.